Well, good morning, church family. It is uh, great to be with you. So thankful again for those who labor to care for our kiddos. And as our seven to tens go out to age-appropriate teaching, I invite you to open uh, your Bible to the book of Titus. We are in the book of Titus right now. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is where we find ourselves. And we have uh, been in this book for just a few weeks, but the series is entitled Transforming Grace. The fact that God comes to us by His amazing grace and kindness to change our lives and to change us in such a way that we shine brightly in a dark world so that more lives would be changed. Transforming grace, that's how we stand. And today we're going to be looking at this one idea, what does it mean to have Christ-supplied contrasting conduct? Yeah, there's a lot of C's. So we're going to dive right in here on this Mother's Day. I'm going to read uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. When you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, I got a few of us. Let's do it. Titus chapter, yeah, it's okay to say it five minutes from now too, really. It is. I felt I needed to do that at times. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, I'm going to read, then we'll pray. This is the word of God given to us that we might love him and live for him. God's word says, but as for you, and that's Titus, teach what accords with sound or healthy doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, healthy or sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men, the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, Titus. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in this moment, you would breathe a fresh wind of peace. A peace that passes understanding that would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I pray that as we look at our lives, that we would be filled with a confident hope that we're not going to be left where we are we will always be supplied with everything we need. 
Father, I pray that even in the concept of our lives needing to change, it would not come with discouragement, but with hope. With actually an encouragement that you love us so much that you want us to live a life for our greatest joy and the joy of those around us and for your great glory. So Father, please, align our hearts, our minds, our will, all that we are with you. That we may be able to say, Jesus, I love you. Have your way with me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to show you two pictures. Uh, two pictures. First picture is this. Tell me, what stands out? Okay, the pepper. Next picture. What about this one? What stands out? The flower. Okay, the question is why? Why does it stand out? Contrast. It's different, right? That's right. Moms know this. When you have your first kid, you think that's how most kids are until you have your second kid. And then you realize you don't know kids at all. And what you begin to see is that one kid will be outgoing and gregarious and the other will be chill. When they're young, you're thankful for the chill. You pray for chill. You ask God for chill because it's, it's a helpful thing. But your kids are different, right? They're different. Some are driven. They're strong personalities. Others, they're more laid back. They love to follow. Don't take initiative as much. Kids are different than other kids. They're different than other siblings. And we have learned about our children through contrast. We know light a little bit better under the contrast of darkness. We know hot a little bit better under the contrast of knowing what cold is. We know comfort a little bit better only because it's contrasted with pain. Contrast stands out, communicates something, because it's against a backdrop of something that's different. Now, when I was growing up, my parents would teach me. They would teach me through comparison and contrast. There was positive instruction and there were warnings. Warnings sometimes that says, son, you don't need to do that. You were too angry. Don't be lazy. Don't look like this or act like that. Don't do that. That's a loss of self-control. Other times, there was positive instruction. Son, that's right. That's good. This is what you need to be walking in. Pursue that. This is a life worth following. This is hard work. This is humility and courage. That's love and care for others. Just positive encouragement, warning. We learn by contrast to be different than what's around us. And we learn by comparison to be like sometimes what's around us. I learned not only to look at others, but kids learn to look at their parents. 
Kids look at their parents. You kind of absorb examples as kids. And that's a very daunting thing as a parent. I know it is for me. That they absorb ways to act. And I know that I saw in my family Jesus prioritized and his church loved. I saw the joy of hospitality. People staying with us for days, weeks, months on end. I saw my dad playing games with college students and taking me to the gym with them and also being trusted with some of their hardest moments. I saw my mom's tireless service and putting others ahead of herself. I also grew to love sports because my dad loved sports and to love music because my family was singing all the time. I saw their generosity. And I learned by comparison, like, that's something that I want to do. We also learn through contrast. We know our God through comparison and contrast. By comparison, when I see those glimpses of, gr of grace in my parents, it's like this small little glimpse into who God is for me. He loves me. He's kind. He's present. He's gracious. That's a gift. But sometimes we learn through contrast. Sadly, my kids have to learn through my mistakes. They do. Mom and dads aren't perfect. We aren't. We can't be. It's a burden too heavy for us to carry. If we were perfect, we would be Savior. Sometimes we feel like we have to be, but that's not our role. Jesus has got that role all locked up. And so, there are many times my kids see my shortcomings and I have to apologize. Apologize for what caused hurt or where I fell short. But in every one of the areas where I am not what I should be, we learn through contrast and our God says, I'm not like that. I'm different. I'm different. I'm always present. I'm always consistent. I am gentle. I'm always on time. I'm always filled with love. So God works in the comparison and says, that's just a small glimpse of how great I am and how much I love you. And he works through the contrast. Actually, take heart, parents. He works through the contrast to say, I'm better than the imperfections of your human mom and dad. Mother's Day is a day of comparison and contrast. Some of us have had wonderful moms. Moms that are a picture of who God is for us. And sadly, others of us have had moms who don't follow Jesus. They might have been hateful or absent or abusive, not present. And then we've had everything in between because this is the world in which we live. The goodness of our mothers is meant to point to the goodness of our God. And the struggles in our mothers are meant to point to a God who says, I'm not like that. I'm present with you. I'm for you. And he is shockingly and beautifully different. Now Titus is charged by Paul to call the church to be shockingly and beautifully different than the world around them. The problem is that the 
church was being infiltrated by those who looked just like the world. Teaching for shameful gain in order to get money. Prizing only what the world was prizing. And the church, even in its imperfections, were meant to stand out in contrast to the broken world around them. The church was meant to be one of contrasting values and demeanor. And people were meant to look at the life of us, the church, and say, there's something shockingly beautiful about their life and I want to live like that. Titus is trying to press in that the church is meant to stand in contrast so that we show off the beautiful difference of Jesus and His work and His people. Now let's remember the background why this is important. Paul is addressing, as he instructs Titus in this letter, he is addressing Titus who is deployed to Crete. Okay, He's deployed to Crete, which is an island just south of Greece. And this picture up here in the background, that is not just some random beautiful place. That is actually Crete, modern-day Crete, one part of present-day Crete. Found in the Mediterranean Sea, and Titus has two tasks as he lands in this city, or in this, on this island. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might, one, put what remained into order, and two, Appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. So as Pastor Ranjur just really helped us with last week, that Titus was, appoint, was supposed to appoint pastors as a line of defense to protect the church from what Pastor Ranjur called deep fakes. Those who were in the church but were living life, lives that didn't look like those who were supposed to be in the church. They didn't look, live like and look like they were Christ. And then Titus, number two, was supposed to put what remained into order. He was supposed to silence those opponents, and he was supposed to speak into the church that their lives were supposed to be different, that they have been transformed by grace, changed by the remarkable love of Jesus, and that should necessarily make their outward lives look different, so different that it actually stands in shocking contrast, like the pictures we saw when they're put up against the backdrop of the outside world. The Cretan culture and the church culture were meant to stand in contrast because of the shocking love. And if you remember, Crete was a place filled with murder for hire, sexual immorality, and it was known by its own philosophers. If you have verse 12, Paul quotes one where it says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's not what you want written on your tombstone, right? Like, that's just, you don't want to be known by that, you know, mantra. And Paul's only conclusion after quoting that philosopher is, yeah, that's true. Like, they're a wreck. And yet, he has to send Titus there because the church is looking too much like that. And so he sends them to say, you've been transformed by grace. Now we've got to walk in that grace. A grace that supplies you with everything you need to live in contrast to the world around you. And so, there's a lot at stake in living in this contrast. 
If you look at Titus chapter 2, verse 1, we know that he's speaking about contrast because the very first word, if you learned anything in kind of elementary English, you've got the word but, which means it's contrasted with what's before. What's before is all of these false teachers and false ideologies that need to be exposed. And he says, now, but you, church, live a different way. That's the contrast. And so listen to verse 1. He says, but as for you, Titus, I want you to teach, or the little word is to speak. I want you to speak what accords with healthy doctrine. Because the false teachers were promoting unhealthy doctrine. Unsound doctrine. And then he'll spend this passage focusing in on different people within the church. Different groupings. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Bond servants. Instructing them on how to live a life that accords with with sound doctrine. What does this mean? A life that accords with sound doctrine. It means that the Bible teaches and God's Spirit empowers a beautiful, kind, courageous, self-controlled, loving life. And if you live that, then it shows off the Word of God to be beautiful and true. And what it is, true. And where do I get that? If you look at verse Five, he says, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to your own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. What's at stake is to live contrary to the word would cause people to dismiss the word. We see it all the time. I don't want to follow Jesus because those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. You've heard those, that kind of statement, and it's because Lives can discredit what is always and forever good and true. The Word of God. And so he wants their life to accord with sound doctrine. To not only show the Word of God to be wonderful and beautiful and true, but so that it would silence the opponents. That's what verse 7 tells us. And then he goes on to tell Titus, that another beautiful aspect of this, if you look at verse 10, at the very end of verse 10, it says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So his aim here is that in instructing the church, their lives would look so beautiful, so loving, so kind, so gracious, it would stand in contrast to the broken culture around it and it would show off the beauty of God's Word and His teaching. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, if I'm wearing a suit, it's usually for two reasons. I'm going to a wedding or a funeral. That's kind of how it has worked in my life. Now, there are a few exceptions. Sometimes I'll go and speak at a church that that would be honoring to them. And sometimes I'll go on a fancy date with my wife but she'll admit that's been pretty rare and far between. So why would I wear a suit? Well, sometimes when I wear a suit, my, like my parents will be like, man, you clean up well. You know, it's because I never look that way. You know, it's like it's kind of all buried down in there. But you put on a suit and it's like, wow, OK, it comes out. Why would I wear a suit? Because the occasion is meant to be honored. I'm honoring those who have lost somebody they love. I'm honoring the one who is celebrating this wonderful union in marriage. I'm dressing up. 
What happens when you go to a wedding? The bride and the groom, they look pretty smashing, right? It's an occasion for dressing up. The bride is coming in in a beautiful dress. Why? Because the occasion is worth it. That moment is special. And it is accentuated by the beauty of the attire of the moment. This is exactly what Paul, or what Paul is telling Titus to instruct the church for. So that their lives would show how beautiful Christ is. How glorious the Bible is. The doctrine of God is. Shows it beautifully different. Paul is telling Titus, that the conduct of the church should be like a beautiful dress or a nice suit, not adorning a person for the person's sake, but to promote and to show off and to televise the beauty of God's word to a broken world. Your conduct being so beautiful, so loving, so kind, so courageous, so bold, so gentle, Your conduct being so shocking is meant to say that can only be explained by something else besides just their ability to kind of muscle through goodness. And what's unique about this is usually there's two occasions that primarily speak to a conduct that has been so changed that it can only be explained by this beautiful God. Occasion number one is everyday life. Not Sunday mornings when you can put it on for a minute, although Sunday mornings are great. Not mission trips, which you can go to and maybe muscle through for a week, and I hope everybody goes on a mission trip. But what Paul is instructing Titus to speak into right here is living a shocking life in the everyday. And the other setting is in suffering. When in your pain, you are able through tears to say, Jesus is worth it. It's a conduct, it's a life that stands out in such a way that the onlooking world says, what is that? The Word of God then is elevated and not reviled. Opponents are silenced. And that is a life that accords with Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Now, if you look at verse 1 again, let me read it to us. It says this, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, I have entitled this Christ-supplied contrasting conduct. I hope I've laid the groundwork for why I've said contrasting conduct. Your life should stand in contrast to the outside world. But why Christ-supplied? Because I don't want you to to take this word doctrine and make it like some happy lecture. When he says, I want your lives to accord with healthy teaching, healthy doctrine, do not depersonalize that. The teaching of the Scriptures is never and cannot and should not ever be separated 
from the God that it is speaking of. Because it is not just speaking about him, it is God speaking of himself. The word of God is the place where we collide with God himself. This is the tragedy many times of the church is that they take the Bible and make it a book to learn rather than a place to meet with God. He is a speaking God. That's what makes the book that we love so beautiful. And that's what makes Christianity so shockingly different is our God has come to us to relate with us despite our train wreck of a life. This is the gospel that all who would acknowledge their sin confess, not that they're kind of bad, but that they're hopelessly, helplessly bad and in need of a Savior, and they're not that Savior. There's only one, one who came to live a perfect life, who had to die on the cross because my sin was so atrocious, and all of my sin, all of your sin was placed upon his shoulders, and he took the punishment that my sin justly deserved. The Father turned His back on the Son. I deserved that. And He died the death that was the just penalty for my sin. And anyone who believes that He stood in your place and on the third day He rose from the dead to guarantee the promise of eternal life, anyone who believes in that confesses not only their sin, but their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus alone for forgiveness. Anyone who does that is rescued, saved, and, and the Spirit of the living God comes and lives in us. In us. Do not let this miss you. He is telling Titus to teach them that they are loved by God. That's healthy doctrine. They are loved by God. They have a Father who is tenderly, sovereignly working for their good. He is telling him that they have been given the Holy Spirit to give you everything you need to do everything He asks you to do. That's healthy doctrine. Don't think classroom, think real life. Classrooms are gifts, but they're only meant to equip you to relate to the living God in the everyday and to cling to Him in suffering and to watch Him show up in powerful ways to always be present and sustain you in what you thought you could never be sustained in. It's about a relationship. We are supplied and He will always supply us with abundance. Not just with meager rations. He's not lacking in supply. He will supply you with abundance in everything that you need. So when you hear words like, be reverent, self-controlled, sober-minded. When we are told to have self-control, the one who is fully self-controlled has saved you by His grace and has come to live inside of you. You are indwelt by self-control himself, the spirit of the living God. Whenever you are told to be reverent or loving or submissive or kind, the one who was perfectly submissive to the Father, the one who was respect personified, the one who was patient, patiently obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, he lives in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are supplied so therefore, we don't face any command with despair. 
we face it with hope. And when you and I are called to change, and we are, when we're called to have a life that lives in contrast to the outside world, it is a Jesus-supplied contrasting life. That's why he says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do that. Work hard. But, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are never, ever alone when we are working out our salvation because God is working in us. So friends, your greatest vice is Christ in us. Our deepest pains, Christ in us for comfort and strength and guidance. Christianity is not simply a right worldview. It is the power of God in you to live differently. So when he says, live in a life that accords with sound doctrine, that's what he means. Now let's dive into verse 2. He begins to address four categories of people. Older men, older women, Younger women, younger men. And he's telling them that their lives should accord with this healthy, relational, loving God who has given us his word. Now let's start with older men. Titus chapter 2 verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound. That word sound is the same word above to describe doctrine. Healthy. Healthy in three ways, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. These are the instructions to older men. Who are older men? Well, if I know anything about age, that applies to no one in here, right? That's how age works, right? Not old, what are you talking about? The older think they're younger, and the younger wants you to think they're older. This is how life works. Everyone is in denial. So, older, in those societal days, that word older was used from anybody as low as it kind of in your 50s, and it might even be earlier than that. We don't know. So who's older? Just take this, okay? Older men. He begins with older men as they are meant to be a leader. By example, responsible for the spiritual direction, the home and the church. They're to live healthy lives that not only stand in contrast to the broken world, but a life worth following. Now, many times, older individuals can get a bad rap. They can be said to be set in their ways, which can be true. Which means sometimes they're not learners. That's what many times people mean by that. And sometimes people get older and their sins become just kind of things that you begin to kind of overlook because it's kind of, quote, always been that way. Paul is actually telling Titus to instruct these older men that you can't say that. You can't say that it's always been that way. They're not above rebuke or reproach. But there is a respectful way in which you do so. Because he says similar words to Timothy as he instructs the church in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, he says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. 
Now, encourage does not simply mean only point out the great in his life. It means build up through pointing out where God is at work. And also at times, if there are debilitating, hurtful patterns, speak into that as well. But how do you do it? It says here, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. That is almost untranslatable in our culture today because fathers are so disrespected. Thank you, Disney Channel. And I don't thank them for that. The parents are the dumb ones. The kids are the ones that have the knowledge. Now, my kids watch Disney, so don't take that as a ram against Disney. It's okay. I'm just saying they're not helping in that situation. Fathers in this passage, are meant to be respected. They're meant to be honored. You treat them differently. And that's what he's saying. When you go to rebuke an older man or encourage an older man, do it as a father. And then he goes on, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, all in purity. So how is he instructing older men? He says, sober-minded. Sober-minded. It's like living within limits, right? You get the idea of sobriety, which means you've pushed past your limits into drunkenness. So live within limits. Healthy boundaries of godly living. Not given to extremes. Not running outside the boundaries that God has set. Not drunk in mind or body. Sober-minded. But then within those limits, you can't just live like you want to. So it's like, okay, I'm not running over this boundary. I'm not running over this boundary. No, there's, there's, a, there's a sphere that you still must live self-controlled life. A life where you don't allow passions to master you. Where you say no to certain things because they're not good for you. They're not healthy for you. A self-controlled life. Life that, it literally would be a life that is actually used as a restorative agent in the lives of others. So it's not only stop doing this, but it's actually be self-controlled in a way that encourages those around you. Sober-minded, self-controlled, dignified. That means be respectable. Be respectable. Live a life that is able to be respected. And honored. And then he says, healthy in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. A healthy life of faith is not a life of perfection, but it's a life that is looking to Jesus. A life that is looking to Jesus. And the self control is constantly turning the eyes away from things that we could give ourselves to, and we look to Jesus. We look to others on how we can care for them and serve them. And we look to Jesus, who is our King. And that looking to Jesus will result in a life of love. A life that looks at the least of these. A life that looks at God's church and seeks to be a man who is healthy in his relationships. Building up one another and serving one another. And healthy in steadfastness. This is unique, I think, with older men. 
The temptation would be in your older years to what? Coast. Throw in the towel. Believe you don't have a purpose. He's saying you should be a picture of healthy endurance, steadfastness, not giving up in your faith or in your love. Keep going. Christ is supplying you. So anyone who is tempted to give up, let this stir you that Christ has supplied all that you need in whatever area you're tempted to give up in. May God use it today. Today to give you hope. You can be sober-minded, respectable, self-controlled, and healthy in faith, love, and in steadfastness. Now he turns to older women. He turns to older women and he says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Older women. If the men don't like to be called old, you can imagine calling a woman old is not what I want to do from the pulpit. So Paul did it, okay? That's him. He did that. You're mature. You're seasoned in years. You're full of love. Paul said old. But in case all of you want to exclude yourself, please don't do that. Many of you are on the back nine, like I am actually. I had a friend, when I turned 40, he, he just called me and lovingly said, how does it feel to be on the back nine? And I was like, that's helpful. You know, it's good. It's just, you know, I've lived a good little bit here and now I'm keep trucking until I'm taken. Older women, don't let it depress you. Let it fill you seriously with thanksgiving. God has sustained your life. He has sustained you and he loves you. That's what age represents. A kind, present God. And that's why he is saying, older women, be reverent in behavior. The word reverent, be Godward in your life. Let it be so contrastingly clear that Jesus is your king in how you live. A life worth following women is to be a spiritually oriented life. A life that loves Jesus. An observable Jesus orientation. Not a show, but an authentically Christ-pointing life. No life on this earth is even close to perfect. However, Jesus wants Older women, to live a life that has a demeanor and actions that reflect Jesus as their peace and their joy. He is the source of their love and they're, they're kind and they're generous. They're relationally warm. And whether in tears or in gladness, they lean on Jesus. There's a reverent Godward orientation to their life. They don't tear others down, but they're known for building others up. So it says that they would not be known as slanderers. They would not participate in the daily gossip and they would speak kindly of others. They would not delight 
to find out news on people and speak down on those people. Don't be slanderers. And then it says, or slaves to much wine. Every single person is highlighted to be self-controlled. Older men, older women, or older men, younger women, and younger men. This is the area of self-control for the women. Don't be slaves to much wine. Why does he say that? I'm not fully sure. But I do think there's this sense that when bodies get older, you seek to take medication or solve it somehow. Don't overdo it. Be careful. Don't be a slave to something to numb your pains. Doesn't mean medicine is bad. No, medicine's a gift. You have to take more of it the older you get. But there's this addiction that could come, and he's just warning. Don't be a slave to much wine. And instead, he says, teach what is good and be a trainer of the young women. Well, what should you be teaching them? Well, we'll get there in just a second. But we must acknowledge in this category of older, older men and older women, that age is hard. Strength fails. Mind is not as sharp. It takes more energy to do the same things. The body is not what it used to be. When that happens, you can get discouraged. When strength fails, you can really be tempted to be down. And it could be tempting to think your purpose is lost when your physical strength is lost. It can be working in you negatively for you to think that you're on your last leg but I want you to know that God, by His strength, is working in your heart. He is working in your heart. And in your latter years, His engine of supply is not sputtering. It's not sputtering. His love and supply is as full for you in your older and final years as it is on Calvary and when you are a spry teenager. Our God is ferociously for you and supplying you with everything that you need. You are not shelved because you are older. Dear friends, the opposite is actually true. In many ways, Paul tells us that it's in our weakness, our emotional, physical, spiritual weakness that Christ's strength is made perfect. So those of you who are older are able to show off, which is why I think he addresses you first and addresses me first. Because it's in our weakness that Christ's strength is made perfect. So boast in your weakness. And what you see is Christ showing up. May you be encouraged with these instructions that God is instructing you because he's not done with you. Just the opposite. He will use you until your last breath. And He will use you, and even in your frailty, He is teaching you a lesson, a lesson of purpose and contentment and trust, how to live a story, a life that is worth emulating to say, Jesus is with me all the way to death. And so He wants you to live a life faithful. Now, what are these older women supposed to teach the younger women? Younger women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled and pure and working at home, 
kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. What's he speaking to in this moment? He's speaking to the fact that the word of God teaches kind of a created order of things. Something is uniquely clear in this passage. That there is such a thing as older and younger. Right? None of you probably said, there's no such thing as older or younger. You were just going with the flow because you know it's true. Isn't it interesting how we, we understand and get age difference, don't we? A five-year-old cannot be a 20-year-old. They can't do it. In a world where how you feel is fact, a 12-year-old cannot be a 35-year-old. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for relationships. It's dangerous for driving. It's dangerous for everyone. We understand boundaries because of age. From the ability to drive, to alcohol consumption, to the ownership of firearms, to the ability to get married, to apply for certain jobs, how you prosecute and determine certain crimes, we understand there are age boundaries and limits. It's a biological fact. You're 10, you're not 54. Same with male and female. Same with male and female. There are two genders. Male and female. And you cannot make yourself what God has not already made you. There are two genders, biologically God-given, not emotionally determined. And our culture, like the Cretan culture, is lying to us. And pastors are being called to step in and protect the church from believing a lie. Dear friends, we have to expose destructive teaching. Our culture is trying with all its might to make normal and natural that which is not natural and was never meant to be normal. And one of the clear, most damaging lies of the devil is that gender is fluid and that equality means that we cannot delight in difference. This passage says there are old and there are young and those are different things. And there are men and there are women and those are different things. And rather than hating the different, we delight in the different. And we embrace His design. And we walk in faithfulness to what He has said. Dear friends, Refusing to delight in difference or to say that differences are demeaning, which is sometimes what we can say. It is a lack of humility. It's like coveting a neighbor's house. I want that house. But that's not the income that I've been given. It's not mine to have. Humility is delighting in difference and being glad that others have what you do not have. 
and being the best you can be in what God has given you. It's trusting God in His design. Weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. But in our world, we're being told that differences are bad. Differences are bad. But we all know from experience that what makes things boring is sameness. We love the fall because leaves are what? Different. We'll even talk about how it's kind of been a bad fall because the leaves are kind of all looking the same. This world is beautiful because of mountains and streams and plains and beaches and forests, not because it was all in grayscale. Differing gifts, differing desires. What if everybody wanted to be a doctor? We would have an overcrowded health system. We might have decent health care and we would have no homes. Right? You wouldn't. You like wouldn't have everything else that we need in life. You'd have no groceries. You have no farming because everybody wants to be a doctor. I'm really glad there are differences. God has created us to delight in difference. Difference is not boring. It's a gift. And so, dear friends, we must delight in difference and we must delight in God's design. Let's just be clear. Some have used God's design as a means to create a culture of abuse. The Bible does not speak that way. It does not foster or allow those things. And even though the Bible is very clear, very clear on old and young, male and female, and on even male leadership in the home and in the church, it is never meant to be a license for abuse. And the churches use some of this when they think they've got the right thinking and they might to act in a very hateful way towards those who are thinking differently. May it never be. We are meant to be a picture of love and love still says there are boundaries, there are differences, but love says, I love you. I'm going to be gentle in how I talk. And anyone who is confused in all of this, it expresses a brokenness and a need for somebody to press in in love and to be present, not someone just to throw darts and to say, get your act together. Praise God, none of us got that message because if we were to get our act together, we'd be lost in our sin. But Christ came to us told us the truth, lived a life that we couldn't live. May we be a contrasting life of beauty and grace. It's really interesting. There's so much to say. I do not have enough time. But just take the, the two unique differences that are in creation. Adam was told to till the garden and to take care of the garden. And the woman was given the ability to give life. The man is stronger physiologically. It's just a fact. And the woman is built in such a way that she can bring forth life and the man can't. It is a physiological fact that we are different. You ask any doctor, we went to the doctor with our little girl the other day and our doctor said, 
men just heal quicker than women. Women are built different so that they can give life. It's just like, and I don't know if this doctor is a believer or not, but our bodies are different. We know they are. And there's something there that God is saying, even in the garden, before sin entered the world, that men should be known as protectors, providers. Women should be known as those who are helpers suitable, not meager backseat, but those who are, as the helper word means, reinforcements that come in the battle, that if the reinforcements don't come, the battle is lost. Both joint in their rule of this world, but with unique differences. Men to be protectors and providers. Even though Eve sinned, Adam was charged with the sin because he was the one that was supposed to be present. He was the one that was supposed to be providing and protecting spiritually, and he was nowhere to be found. This is before the fall. This was set up. And then you look at our Savior, and you know how He treats women? I mean radical for the culture. Radical. In a culture that minimized dignity of women and depersonalized them, Kevin DeYoung has a, a great book on men and women, and he goes through this list, how Jesus boldly affirmed their worth and how he gladly benefited from their vital ministry. Just so many things. He spoke to women freely, in public, no less. He ministered to the needs of hurting women, such as Peter's mother-in-law. The woman was bent over for 18 years. The bleeding woman, the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus ministered to women. And he allowed women to minister to him. Women anointing Jesus. Women warmly received, he warmly received their service. Some women helped Jesus' ministry financially and offered hospitality. Many women followed Jesus. Over and over, women are highlighted. But it is unique to know that although he was Bucking against this system, he did choose 12 men to be his apostles, the ones who would be the spiritual leaders of this movement, and the ones who would be the spiritual leaders of the church were meant to be the pastors who were men. Because they have been designed by God in God's mysterious providence to lead, protect. That's not bad news. There has to be leaders. Leaders aren't better. They're different. And I know Rosaria Butterfield, strong feminist, who was converted to Jesus. Her biggest, one of her biggest struggles was, does this type of teaching foster abuse? Abuse towards women. To have men as leaders. And she says, of course it doesn't. But I, that was a barrier for her. And she says what helped her most was the theory of aesthetics over against the Bible. Like she said, like the Bible helped her the most. But the theory of aesthetics, this is something that she taught. And here's the theory of aesthetics. What is true determines what is beautiful and ethical. She said, that stopped her in her tracks. If what is true is that a wife's submission to her husband is God's good gift, 
because it was in the world before sin entered, then I needed to see beauty and I needed to see an aesthetic wisdom that came from that. Everything God does is right. And everything he does is providentially right. That means not arbitrary or mean, but from a father's tender hand and from a sovereign's perfect design. And she said that the way the culture is preserved is that male headship or leadership in the home and in the church is guarded in the church itself. Because if you have a rogue husband, you've got pastors who are there to protect you. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, if you somehow have rogue pastors, the congregation is there to call out foul and to say something about it. The church is the safeguard so that this is a gospel culture, never an abusive. And that it honors the design that God has given. And so, when older women are supposed to teach younger women, older women, remember, you've been given a charge to teach younger women, and it says to love their husbands and their children. Not all younger women are married and have children. That is completely true. This is not obliterating singleness. But those who do should be known for their love and their care for their children and to be self-controlled. Timothy goes on to say, not flirting with gossip or a lack of self-control with their bodies, but pure. And it says, working at home. That does not mean the only place you can work is home. Proverbs 31 says something completely different. She's out in the market. She's working hard. It just means that there is a uniqueness. There's a uniqueness to your physical design that makes you a nurturer. One who brings forth life. And God has given you the ability to manage and to nurture and to care for that home. So don't neglect the home. And oh, do we need this today when the world is telling you you're only valuable when you're in the workplace and they demean children and they demean those who stay at home. That is not biblical. You delight in God's design and you're faithful in what God has given you. And be submissive to your husbands, it says. Submissiveness. Jackie Hill Perry, she was talking about how media and culture just have influenced our idea of submission and headship. And she said, I don't think people have really looked at the Bible about what that means. They've just thought about what culture says. And she said that some people define submission as being a maid and headship as dominance. But she says, that's not the Bible. True biblical headship is servant leadership as God leads and serves us. And true biblical submission is willing, glad submission. She says, I'm not my husband's maid. I'm his helper and I love to do so. Jackie Hill Perry is a strong woman, a gifted woman, and sees no contradiction between living her life and building up the church and also being a helper to her husband. Older women are to teach younger women this so that the word of God is not reviled. And likewise, younger men, be self-controlled, dot, 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 in everything. You younger men, be self-controlled in what you look at. 
Be self-controlled in how you act. Don't let one word make it look like that somebody's getting a pass. Self-controlled in everything. Don't be lazy. Take ambition and initiative. Lead forth. Be kind and loving. Be self-controlled with how you spend your money. How you eat. Be self-controlled. Titus was told in verse 7 to be a model in all respects of good work. So that as he teaches these things, the message he's speaking is accompanied with a life worth following. Titus is speaking in chapter in verse 9 to these bond servants, and for the simplicity of this moment, it is just meant to say those who are under the service of others, working for others. Be submissive. And when you feel like you're not getting a good day's wage, don't steal from them. Don't be argumentative, but show all good faith. Why? So that your conduct would stand in such contrast to the outside world. It would adorn the Word of God, the sound, healthy teaching of God's Word. So church, as the shoe fits, may we put it on. But may we live Christ-supplied lives that stand in contrast to a broken world and delight in God's good design. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so much to deal with, so much to go over, but we thank you for your love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I pray. I pray that we would all understand that in every way, you are for us. And I pray that we would all understand that we all will walk a submissive life to someone. And that submission is not an evil thing, but a beautiful thing because our Savior was seen to be submissive to the Father. Jesus was also the leader of the church, and he was seen as the servant-hearted leader. And so, Father, those who have that responsibility, I pray, God, that you would equip them. And I pray, Father, that we would thank you that you have ordained that men spend their time and energy in the church and in the home and in all of life, really thinking about how to live out and serve and love and protect and be generous and nurture and pray for and provide for and comfort and make others glad, especially their wives and the women in the church. Father, I pray that singles feel cared for in the church. I pray that they know that their pastors are for them. We are aiming to protect and care for them. Father, I just pray that what happens out of this 
is that we feel supplied to live a contrasting life because Paul's burden here is that lost people all around us would look in at our lives and see the contrast and want to know the beauty of Jesus. Father, do that, I pray. And now as we go to take the Lord's Supper, I just ask God that in just a brief moment of reflection, that you would use your word to stir our hearts. And that, Father, we would confess our sin and confess our faith. Be with us now, I pray. Let's just take a moment to reflect. Ask God to do a work in your heart. And then we will take the Lord's Supper together.